As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello Australian True Crime listeners, we have something a bit different for you today. It's a sneak peek at a new series we'll be rolling out every fortnight from this Thursday for our Australian True Crime Plus subscribers. It's called True Crime Compendium. I've been hunting high and low for fascinating crime stories from around the world with only one criteria. They have to be stories I've never heard before. And I'm going to be sharing them every fortnight with our Australian True Crime Plus subscribers. 
To join the club and get exclusive access, including ad-free episodes of Australian True Crime, just click the links at the top of the Apple Podcast app. And now, on to the first episode of True Crime Compendium, the murder of Katie Ratcliffe and the shockingly unusual killer hiding in plain sight. In this episode, we're travelling to the town of Camberley in Surrey, just over an hour's drive southwest from the centre of London. It's very pleasant, very green, and it's what we Australians would call a great place to raise kids. It's the kind of place peaceful, pleasant people like Joe and Helen Ratcliffe raise hard-working, good-natured children like their daughters, Joanne and Katie. But as we know, not everyone gets to grow up with peaceful, pleasant parents. And no community is immune from the devastating long-term effects of child abuse and child neglect. This is the story of the unlikely killer who hid in plain sight in the tiny and terrified community of Cambly for two years, while a baffled police force hadn't the first clue what they were even looking for. Eighteen-year-old apprentice hairdresser Katie Ratcliffe was nursing a broken heart in June 1992. She'd broken up with her boyfriend, Metin, but still harboured hopes of a reunion. On the night of Saturday, the 6th of June, she headed out to the local nightclub with her best friend, Michelle. Some weeks later, that night was reenacted on the TV show UK Crime Watch. Our last reconstruction tonight is the murder of 18-year-old Kate Ratcliffe. She'd been out dancing with friends at a popular club in Camberley in Surrey. At the end of the evening, through a misunderstanding which turned out to be tragic, Kate's friends left for home without her. A few hours later, Kate was dead. Now, why was she killed and by whom? Was it by some stranger who saw her by chance out walking in the small hours? Or perhaps had somebody followed her from the club? Police badly need your help. Our reconstruction begins at the hairdressing salon where Kate was a trainee. Kate had worked at Bumble's too for nearly two years. Alison Glover, who runs the salon, remembers Kate with great affection. Kate came to the salon two years ago, straight out of school. She was always very friendly and willing to help and do anything that she could possibly do. She had a great enthusiasm for the job. Happy-go-lucky, everyday teenager. Kate lived two miles away in Hawley with her parents and older sister, Joanne. Kate was my only sister. She loved going out. She loved dancing, she had a lot of friends, she loved her job. She was just a normal 18-year-old, happy-go-lucky girl. Kate and her best friend Michelle always went out on a Saturday night. Kate and Michelle often went to Ragamuffins in Camberley. It's a popular nightclub in an indoor shopping precinct. They'd arranged to meet some other friends there. Several people at the club noticed a man in his mid-twenties standing alone at one end of the dance floor. He was dressed entirely in black and he stood staring silently at the dancers throughout the night. Who was he? 
During the evening, Kate met a former boyfriend, Metin. They'd ended their relationship some six months ago, but Kate was still very fond of him. No one saw Kate leave the club. She probably went when the music finished around two o'clock. Assuming she'd left with Metin, her friends didn't worry about her. In fact, he'd left before her. Police believe she went outside searching for him. Kate returned to Ragamuffins. She seemed to be looking for someone. She was clearly upset. I was waiting to lock up, and she was one of the last to leave. Then I had to unlock the door to let her out. I saw her walk two or three yards outside the doors and stop. She just stood there. I remember logging down the time. It was 2.30. It's always busy outside the precinct as ragamuffins turns out. But within half an hour or so, the area is almost deserted. One of the few people still around was an acquaintance of Kate's, Philip Williams. I see Kate was on her own, and she was obviously upset. I kept asking her how she was. She didn't reply. I got the impression she was looking for a friend met him. At eight o'clock that Sunday morning, Kate's body was found. She'd been fatally stabbed. I can't begin to understand why anybody would want to hurt Kate. She, she didn't have any enemies. She was a very popular girl. Um, I miss her. We all miss her a great deal. Um, if there is anybody out there that can, can help, please come forward. That reenactment was, understandably, erring on the side of politeness, if not reality. The truth is that Katie had had quite a bit to drink over the course of the evening, and her conversation with ex-boyfriend Metin was rather more intense than the TV show portrayed. Metin later told police that Katie had professed her love for him that night. She told him she wanted to marry him and begged him to take her home. Metin was forced to tell her that he'd already moved on to a new relationship. Katie became very upset at this point and stormed off, and Metin took the opportunity to leave the club and avoid any more confrontation. Katie's friends assumed she'd gone home with Metin, so they went home too. And that's how Katie ended up wandering alone, upset, back and forth into the club and finally out into the street. As they mentioned on Crime Watch, Katie's body was discovered at 8am the following morning and she'd been fatally stabbed. Again, they've politely left out the details and I believe that's probably due at least in part to the time slot of the program. But the facts are these. Katie's naked body was discovered lying on the footpath beside a cemetery wall in Farnborough, which is a 10-minute drive from the nightclub. She was discovered by a group of small boys who'd met outside to play that morning. Katie had been viciously stabbed over 30 times, and most of the wounds were concentrated around her face, her breasts and genitals, which were completely slashed and mutilated. It was a scene that shocked the homicide squad, let alone the community. Police quickly eliminated the obvious people of interest, including Metin, and found themselves with no leads, no witnesses to the crime or CCTV footage. They turned to profilers. Forensic psychiatrist Dr David Holmes describes the kind of predator police thought they were looking for. 
For the investigating police, Katie's death was one of mystery. However, the primary evidence, the frenzied attack, the sexuality of the attack would point to a male. It would point to perhaps a male in their 30s. It would point to someone who was physically capable of dragging Katie from the one killing location to her final resting place. There are a number of military barracks in the area, so police and the local rumour mill concentrated their efforts there. But as days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months, Katie Ratcliffe's horrific murder remained unsolved. Two years to the day after Katie's murder, a 13-year-old girl by the name of Anne-Marie Clifford was violently attacked in the toilet block at her school, Collingwood College Comprehensive, also in Camberley, Surrey, but in a very different neighbourhood to the one Katie had grown up in. Directly adjacent to the school is the Old Dean housing estate, which is so unpredictable, shall we say, that local police have been known to refuse to enter. Their cars are routinely pelted with rocks and bricks when they venture onto the estate, and legend has it that a washing machine was once pushed off a balcony onto a parked police van below. Anne-Marie Clifford wasn't attacked by an intruder onto the school grounds, but by a classmate, 14-year-old Sharon Carr. Carr convinced Clifford to join her in the toilet block during class time by saying she'd dropped a pound coin in there earlier and needed help finding it before recess, when surely someone else would claim it. Obviously, if they went during class time, they probably wouldn't be disturbed. Once they were in there and Anne-Marie was on the ground searching for the coin, Sharon pounced on her. She produced a knife from her pocket and started stabbing the other girl. Newspaper journalist Stephen Wright, who covered the case extensively, spoke to Anne-Marie later about her memory of the attack. She said very clearly that she looked up and Carl was standing over her with a knife, sort of juggling it from one hand to another. And she was smiling. And it's a very sort of chilling image. Someone who's possibly on the brink of murdering someone, smiling, enjoying the terror that she had inflicted on her victim. In an incredibly fortunate twist of fate, five other students did enter the toilet block during the attack and Sharon fled the scene as Anne-Marie lay bleeding on the floor with serious wounds. Sharon Carr was quickly apprehended nearby by police and transported directly to a medical assessment facility. But she was apparently still in a frenzied state and she attacked two staff members upon arrival there. So two charges of actual bodily harm were immediately added to those relating to her attack on Anne-Marie. When Sharon was moved to Bullwood Hall, a women's and young offenders institution, the sorry story of her short life began to emerge. Sharon Carr was born in 1979 in the tiny country of Belize in Central America. It's wedged between Mexico, Guatemala and the Caribbean Sea. It's a very beautiful place and no doubt very cheap to visit. 
However, you should know that the US State Department currently has it at a level two on its travel advisory chart. It summarises Belize as a place where visitors can expect violent crime such as sexual assault, home invasions, armed robberies and murder to be common in tourist areas, even in the daylight hours. Further, their website explains that local police lack the resources and training to respond effectively to serious criminal incidents and most crimes remain unresolved and unprosecuted. Sharon was one of four children being raised by her mother Molly and a stepfather in Belize. That stepfather was a violent drunk who assaulted everyone in the family on a daily basis and her mother meted out violent punishments to the children while also schooling them in rituals she described as voodoo. She was known to apply chili to their genitals, for example, which may or may not have been associated with the Haitian celebration of Fet Gede, the Day of the Dead, during which people sometimes do this to themselves as a sort of offering to ancestral spirits. When Sharon was still very young, her mother met a British man and she and her children ran away with him to England. Sharon thrived in the new environment initially. Her teachers described her as charming, her grades were good, and she excelled at team sports. But the breakdown of her mother's new relationship seems to have changed everything for the little girl. That stepfather later recounted one particularly violent incident that gives a chilling insight into Sharon's emotional development. After the marriage sort of ended, and there was quite a violent episode, you know, we were told by the stepfather that when he sort of finally went to see Sharon Carr's mother to say, I'm, I'm finished, this relationship's over, that she poured boiling fat um, over him, and, you know, he was, he was in agony. Her stepfather said one of the most extraordinary things about that incident was the calm face of Sharon Carr. She witnessed it and didn't flinch. She was absorbing these images of violence and it, it didn't appear to disturb her. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The head teacher of Sharon's primary school contacted social services over her behavior when she was just eight years old, and she was briefly placed into foster care. But soon after she returned to her mother's home on the old Dean housing estate, domestic pets started going missing around the neighbourhood. The family's next-door neighbour's dog was found decapitated. While it was never proven that Sharon was the culprit, she was building a reputation as someone to be feared by the age of 11. And her mother the formerly brutal disciplinarian, lost interest in keeping track of her movements at all. Sharon was surviving the main streets of the old Dean on her own terms and without any parental guidance or support. She was hanging out with older boys and smoking weed. While she was increasingly problematic for teachers, Sharon was popular with her fellow students. Her closest school friends later reported that she kept her school life and her home life very separate. At school, she was known as something of a lovable rogue, always up to mischief, but mostly of the funny kind. Her peers described her as charismatic and always willing to take the fall for others. So on that day, June 6th in 1994, when she lured a classmate into the bathroom, seemingly to murder her, no one was more shocked than her classmates, the kids who sat next to her every day, who thought they knew her so well. Sharon was sentenced to two years in Bullwood Hall Young Offenders Centre for her assaults on Anne-Marie Clifford and the two staff members at the medical assessment facility after her arrest. While Sharon talked a lot during her time in Bullwood Hall about getting out of there and resuming her old life in Camberley, her actions didn't match her words. Instead of keeping her head down and doing her time, Sharon started talking to anyone who'd listen, including staff members, about other crimes she'd committed but never even been suspected of. One of the crimes she claimed to have been involved in was the still-unsolved 1992 murder of hairdresser Katie Ratcliffe. Police were alerted by a prison officer and they attended Bullwood Hall to conduct what turned out to be a lengthy formal interview with Sharon Carr. Sharon was completely cooperative from the start. She shared information about Katie's murder that police had held back from the media and from the public. She talked about a bracelet she'd stolen from Katie, about specific wounds to Katie's body. Details only someone present at the scene could have known. To top it off, Sharon told detectives she'd kept meticulous diaries dating back to well before the crime. And those notebooks, which would confirm everything she'd told them, were sitting in her bedroom at her mum's house on the old Dean estate. 
The house was raided that day and sure enough, the diaries were recovered. From the moment they started flicking through them, police knew the person they'd been searching for all along wasn't a strong man in his 30s. Katie Radcliffe was viciously murdered at random by a 12-year-old girl. Veteran journalists Stephen Wright and Paul Cheston reflect on those diary entries. There were diary entries referring to KR, Katie Radcliffe's initials, obviously, in which she basically boasted about her involvement in the killing. She actually relished it. What had happened really revealed her sort of lust for blood, not an ounce of sympathy at all. She was enjoying the memory of what she'd inflicted on, on Katie Ratcliffe. And there are other, other diary entries as well, which she had made, and which I think she referred to killing being her business and business being good. She wrote about how in her dreams every night she saw the devil and I realised uh, that it is me. And, uh, and she said, uh, described herself as a life destroyer, a twisted life destroyer. Forensic psychiatrist Dr David Holmes talks about the effect of the diaries on Sharon's case. These were damning. These were, if you like, a reiteration of the enjoyment she felt about killing Katie, the sexual um, intensity of Sharon's feelings at the time of the killing, the idea that she enjoyed seeing the fear on the face of her victim and the life draining from them. This was something that Sharon wanted to revisit. It was something that she was proud of. It was something, if you like, that she wanted the world to know about, but she couldn't tell them. Criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley talks about why she thinks Sharon kept those meticulous diaries. Well, the diaries are a way of basically reliving the murders. It's, it's a way of, of commemorating them. It's, it's being able to go back and to, to revisit that moment when she felt all-powerful. So she's preserving that moment. She doesn't want to forget it. And that's why we see these quite lengthy passages written about the most horrendous acts of violence, because she wants to enjoy it. She wants to get that high again. Between Sharon's formal interviews with police in 1994, her diary entries over the previous years, and the evidence given by her two accomplices, the grim timeline of events of the night of Katie's death slowly emerged. While Katie and her friends had been at the nightclub, 12-year-old Sharon Carr had been driving aimlessly around the streets of Camberley with two older boys. Just after 2.30am, they spotted Katie walking alone, and clearly upset, and at Sharon's insistence, they pulled over and offered her a lift home. Like other women before her, most famously Myra Hindley, the Moors murderer, Sharon used the fact that she was a woman, or in fact, a little girl, to make Katie feel more comfortable about accepting the lift. Once in the car, though, it didn't take long for Katie to realise that they weren't heading toward her home and she and Sharon began to argue in the back seat. 
The driver pulled the car over in a quiet street behind a cemetery and Kate leapt out and ran. Sharon chased after her and according to the young men who corroborated each other's stories in their interviews, when Sharon caught her, she launched into a frenzied stabbing attack. In fact, when Katie was dead, Sharon pulled her clothes off and kept stabbing and mutilating her body. When she was done, Sharon looked for the young men to help her deal with the body, but she discovered that they'd panicked and left. She was there to deal with it alone. Sharon tried to drag Katie's body and hide it somewhere, but she only made it as far as the footpath. At that point, she gave up and ran all the way home. The following day, Monday, Sharon was back at school as though nothing had happened. And she continued with her life for the next two years until she attacked Anne-Marie Clifford in the bathroom on the anniversary of Katie's murder in 1994. Sharon was convicted of Katie's murder on the 25th of March, 1997. Passing sentence, Mr Justice Scott Baker told Carr, it is clear that killing, in your words, turns you on. You are a very dangerous young woman. As Sharon Carr left the dock, she was smiling. She may spend the rest of her life behind bars. Sharon, who was known in the media by this stage as the devil's daughter, was sent to Holloway Prison where she was quickly diagnosed as suffering from schizoaffective disorder. Former FBI profiler Candace DeLong explains the diagnosis. Schizoaffective disorder is the double whammy of psychiatric problems. This is a condition marked by profound mood swings and periodic psychoses. Bad combo. Most people diagnosed with it do have difficult lives, but they do not become killers. Sharon was different. Sharon gives mental illness a bad name. In 1998, Sharon was transferred to Broadmoor Hospital, the infamous high-security psychiatric facility that stood in Berkshire since 1863. It's been home to some of Britain's most notorious killers, including Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, Ian Brady, Myra Hindley's partner in the Moores murders, gangster Ronnie Cray, and several men who've been accused of being Jack the Ripper. Broadmoor was also a favourite hunting ground of television personality and depraved sexual deviant Jimmy Savile, who held the official title of Voluntary Assistant Entertainment Officer, which came with an office on the grounds, a bedroom and a full set of keys. Broadmoor has been a men-only facility since 2006, but during her time there, Sharon was able to socialise from time to time with male prisoners during supervised recreational sessions. In 1999, she met and formed a friendship with fellow inmate Robbie Lane. Their friendship blossomed into love, and eventually they were permitted to engage in hour-long supervised meetings during which they were allowed to kiss and cuddle. In 2001, two years after their first meeting, they became engaged and announced their plans to get married inside the hospital by Broadmoor chaplain Trevor White. Sharon and Robbie were each permitted to invite a small number of family members to the ceremony, 
which is probably how news of the impending wedding leaked out of the hospital walls. Sensing a public outrage in the making, the media was quick to run details of both the bride and groom's lives before their Broadmoor days. As unbelievable as it sounds, apparently these details had never come up in conversation between the young lovers. Robbie Lane had no idea his teenage bride was known as the Devil's Daughter, or why. He knew nothing of the murder of Katie Radcliffe, or the diaries, or the animal killings, or anything else, until the two of them read a newspaper article during one of their supervised visits. Before you feel too sorry for Robbie, though, it was also the moment that Sharon discovered her husband-to-be had murdered his own mother in a fit of jealousy believing she preferred his sister over him. He'd also gouged her eyes out during the attack. According to staff who were present, both Sharon and Robbie were thoroughly disgusted by the brutal crimes of the other, and the wedding was called off on the spot. Apparently, they never spoke to each other again. It's now been over 30 years since Sharon murdered Katie Sutcliffe. And while some people still like to think that psychiatric hospitals are the easy alternative to prison time, Sharon Carr is living proof of the biggest flaw in that argument. There's no time frame when it comes to how long Sharon will be locked up. The average length of time you'll do in prison for murder in the UK is 20 years. A youth offender will average 12 years. Sharon Carr will be locked up until a team of doctors say she's no longer a threat to society. And I mean, how long is a piece of string? Sharon's been locked up since she was 14, since before the invention of smartphones. Sharon does apply for release, though, every time she's eligible, most recently this year, 2023. She's been denied release every time on the grounds that she still exhibits problematic behaviour when it comes to forming healthy relationships with other people and that she struggles with any perceived rejection. Thank you for downloading this episode of True Crime Compendium and don't forget to become a subscriber, a member of Australian True Crime Plus by clicking the links at the top of the Apple Podcast app. When you do that, you'll get exclusive access, including ad-free episodes of Australian True Crime and an episode of True Crime Compendium every Thursday. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. 
Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.